I uh, really appreciate how David pointed out the Trinitarian aspect of the gospel and uh, the songs that Jesslyn led us in. This is a Trinitarian set, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you cannot um, know reality as it really is unless you know the Trinity, unless you know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how they interact and how they uh, define all of reality for us. So today we'll talk about the Spirit and um, we'll get, get into it in just a minute. Uh, but first off, I want to uh, express my appreciation for the last two speakers. So you guys had the privilege of listening to my brother, uh, Harry, preach on Psalm 42 two weeks ago. Um, yesterday, or last week, uh, Pastor Tom, he spoke from Revelation chapter 1 and about Jesus. He painted a picture of Jesus for us. And I heard from uh, multiple people this how much they appreciated the, uh, the word brought by Harry and Tom, and I also appreciate it. And um, this is what unites us as a church. Um, we're centered around the word of God. The word of God is the one objective reality that we can speak from, and that's why we give this amount of time to the word spoken. So I um, just want to thank you guys, and um, I hope that this sticks with you. You guys can go to our live stream if you want to listen to it, listen to them if you haven't had a chance to. Um, so it's been three weeks since we looked in 1 Corinthians, and today we're going to jump back in. And to reorient us, 1 Corinthians is one of the two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. This was a young church that was made up of a hodgepodge of people that gathered in this uh, this kind of central um, central place in the trade route of the ancient world. And that meant that there were lots of different personalities from all different types of cultural and socioeconomic and religious backgrounds coming together in this Corinthian church, which meant that this church was, like any other organization that has a lot of people, um, it was disjointed and it was divided. There was scandalous sin in this church. And it was such a long way off from what a good church should be. And if there were the Corinthian church here in Castro Valley, um, you'd probably visit one time and you'd head off to another church because it's not a church that you would want to be a part of. But back in the first century, you didn't really have a choice as to which church you belong to. Um, if you live within 10 miles of a church, that's where you went. So th- these Corinthian believers were stuck together. Paul wrote the, these letters to them. And he says, God has been working in your church. And Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it contains declarations of who the church members were. He says, you are saints of God called together for the purpose of God. It contains the Corinthians. It contains the instruction of the gospel. The basis of their existence, he says, is the word of the cross. The church is centered around this word of the cross, this message of Jesus Christ crucified and the next time we speak i I speak in in, uh next time i speak is going to be i think in two or three weeks and it will be the last time that we're in this book of first corinthians and at the end of this short series what i want us to come away with is that igc must have our our priorities straight that the way that we think about church the people that it's made up of, the message that we preach, the way that we approach ministry, that all these things that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians, that it becomes true of our church. Our church has been through some really tough times this past season. 
But I think right now um, we're in the best place that we've been in years. I really mean that. I'm excited. The elders are excited. Um, We've got a long way to go, but I'm really excited about what God has been doing and what he can do, what he will do. But in order for us to be a church that is what we should be, we need to really think about what it means for our, for IGC to be a healthy church that is faithful to the gospel, that is effective. And this is why I chose to preach through the first uh, two chapters of 1 Corinthians, because I think Paul speaks so clearly about what we need to know in these days. Primarily, who we are as believers, and number two, what we stand on. So we need to know these two things. Um, we need to, know, need to know a whole lot more, but this is primary to our identity as a church. We are saints, and we are centered around the word of the cross. So with that, let me, let's me uh, let look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look at the second half of verse 10 to the end of verse 13. It should be in your bulletin behind me if you're following online. It should show up on your screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, second half of chapter 10 to verse 13. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This is the Word of God, and it's given to us for our good. So as we look at the text today, my hope is that we'll understand what a precious gift we have in the Spirit of God, and that our desire, that we'll have a desire to be taught by Him and shaped by Him and that this will be ever-increasing for our church as we consider these things. And I hope that we, together as a church, will not take for granted this gospel that the Spirit reveals to us. So, let's think about a few things. And the first thing um, I want you to think about is what you already think about. I have a question for you. And this is the question. What do you think about what is it that crosses your mind? What are the small things and the big things? The distracting thoughts and also the thoughts that you concentrate on and focus on? If you were to write everything down over the course of the coming week, what would be on that list? And how long would it be? And what would be on it? And then let's say that you wrote that list out and you gave it to me or a friend and we read it. If we read every one of your thoughts, we would have a really good idea about who you are as a person. Because within your thoughts are your passions. Within your thoughts are the revelations of what make you angry and happy, the things that smile and wince the things that you regret and the things that you look forward to. And all these things will tell me or the person who reads this list what is important to you. What is it that you're all about? What is your purpose? Why do you exist? So think about that. What is it that you think about? Now I have another question for you. What does God think about? 
what does the God of the universe, the infinite, eternal God, think about? Have you ever thought about that? Let me tell you what God thinks about. This is what God thinks about. God thinks about trees, the 73,000 different types of species on planet Earth. God thinks about frogs, 5,000 different species. God thinks about birds, the 11,000 species of birds. God thinks about quokkas. Have you ever heard of quokkas? These are the small cat-sized marsupials on a few islands in the world. If you Google it, quokkas, Q-U-O-K-K-A, every one of these pictures of these quokkas are these little tiny animals smiling at you because these animals smile. God thinks about quokkas. What else does God think about? God thinks about all 500 varieties of olives. God thinks about the color of taro. God thinks about the sweetness of watermelon and mangoes. God thinks about the odor of durian fruits. Have you smelled that? God thinks about the taste of chicken. This is in the mind of God. God also thinks about music, hip-hop and jazz, heavy metal, bluegrass, classical music. God thinks about melody and harmony and meter and syncopation. If you look up in the sky, God thinks about the blue of the sky and the clouds that float above us. God thinks about your eye. I know we have some optometrists here, and this is what they can tell you. Did you know that the resolution of the human eye is 500 megapixels? In comparison, I own an iPhone 10. Um, the me- it has, it's 10 megapixels. If you have the latest iPhone, the iPhone 14 Pro Max, that's 48 megapixels. The human eye is 10 times more fine and brilliant than that. The human eye can differentiate between 10 million colors, but did you know that there are 18 decillion colors? The human eye can comprehend 10 million of those. Did you know that your pupils dilate when you see someone that you love? Whose idea was that? Why? How does your eye know that you love the person in front of you? Did you know that there are, a, there are 117 million cells in our eyes? There are 7 million that help us with the detection of color and detail. And there are 100 million cells that help distinguish between the shades of black and white. 100 million cells just to help us differentiate between the shades of black and white. And who thinks of that? God thinks of that. God thinks about babies and wrinkly old women. He thinks about you and me and every other one of the 7.9 billion people on planet Earth. And he thinks about your happiness and your heartache. And this is a whole lot to think about. But let's not stop there, because God doesn't stop there. I've only spoken of things on planet Earth so far. And as Carl Sagan said, the Earth is but a pale blue dot a moat of dust hanging on a sunbeam when compared to the rest of the universe. And God's thoughts go beyond what you and I can see. So let's think bigger. We live on planet Earth, which is a part of the solar system. We have the sun, the moon, and the seven other planets. And the sun is one star in our solar system, the sun, which is 92 million miles away. It's 109 times larger than our planet's. And our solar system resides in a galaxy called the Milky Way Galaxy, 
which is 52,850 light years across. And that means that if you were to jump on a rocket ship and you want to get from one end to the other, you would have to get on that rocket ship. It'd have to go at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, not miles, per second. That's the speed of light. It would take you 52,850 years to get from one end of the galaxy to the other. One light year is 5.8 trillion miles. And don't try to do the math because your mind can't comprehend how big that is. And yet, the Milky Way galaxy is only one tiny, tiny galaxy in this vast universe made up of two trillion galaxies in the known universe. And remember I said there's one star in our solar system, the sun. It's estimated that there are 100 billion stars just in our Milky Way. If that's the case, if you do the math, there are estimates of possibly there are are an estimated 200 sextillion stars in the universe. That's two with 23 zeros. There are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. The universe is massive. And this is what God thinks about. And Psalm 147 tells us this, that God determines the number of stars and he knows each of them by name. How does God come up with 200 sextillion names? I don't know, but he does. This is what God thinks about. The universe itself, at least from what we know, is 93 billion light years across. This is just what we know we're told that the universe continues to expand. And this is what God thinks about. And um, I know I'm kind of going along with the list, but let me just give you one, my favorite space fact. And um, it, get, it help, helps me kind of put into perspective the significance of how big these things are. And it's the, the, one of the factoids of the planet Saturn. If you know the planet Saturn, you might know that it's a big planet and it's got rings. And these rings are made up of uh, space particles and huge, gigantic rocks that circle the planet. And did you know this, that the outer rings of Saturn, they are spiraled. If you look at Saturn with a super powerful telescope and you focused in on the rings, you would see that the spirals are braided. It's like they're intertwined, just circling around Saturn. Physicists, astrophysicists, they study this. They're, they're like, why is there something so beautiful in outer space, which unless we had super powerful telescopes, no one would ever see. Why does that happen? It's because Saturn vibrates. And the oscillations of the vibrations change the, pa- the pattern, the, the trajectory of the rocks on the rings. And that's why there's this beautiful, Google it, these beautiful spirals around Saturn. And this is no small thing. Saturn is, the rings of Saturn are 170,000 miles across. The outer ring is braided. And whose idea was that? That was God's idea. We know God thinks these things because all of these are his idea. And here's the amazing thing that I'm not sure we can wrap our heads around. The Bible says this, These are just the beginning of all that he does, merely a whisper of his power. God spoke the universe into existence, and that's just a mere whisper. What if God were to shout? What if God were given eternity to create? 
we know all these things because of science, because of our observations. Everything that we've ever observed as a species, everything that we ever will observe, will only scratch the surface of who God is and what he can do. And now that's already a whole lot. And you could spend 50 trillion years studying these things and you would not even begin to scratch the surface of everything there is to know. This is what God knows. This is what God thinks about. But do you know that what God thinks about more, do you know what it is that God thinks about more deeply than all of these things that I mentioned? Do you know what lies in the deepest parts of God? What is it that God cares most about? What is it he thinks most about? What is it that fills God's mind? It's not universes. It's not what happens here on planet Earth, although he cares about it more than any of us could ever imagine. What God cares about the most, what he thinks about the most, his greatest idea is this, the gospel. When we last looked at 1 Corinthians, this is what we read, and I'll read it to you again from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the spirits. What is it that our minds cannot wrap our heads around? It's not the size of the universe. We cannot wrap our heads around the truth of the gospel. And yet it's our aim, our goal as a church to speak it, to preach it every week. It's to make sure that we don't get bored of it. So what is the gospel? The gospel is this, that man and woman was created in God's image to know God, to have fellowship with him, to enjoy God forever. But we rebelled against God by saying, God, you're the greatest thing in the world, but in the universe, but I don't need you. I'm going to live by my own rules. That's called rebellion. That's called sin. That breaks the relationship. And because of that, the consequence is separation from God himself. And there's something called eternal judgment and hell and the wrath of God. And we deserve that. But God loves his people so much that he gave himself He gave us Jesus Christ to live the life that we could not have lived, to die the death that we deserved. And three days later, he rose again from the dead as a first fruits of creation, as a promise to us that we will never die if we put our trust in him, if we believe this God of the universe, if we receive the righteousness that God gives us. The gospel is that God gives us the righteousness of Christ The gospel is not that you can be a better person or that you should try harder. The gospel is you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And when God looks at you, he sees perfection. God loves you beyond anything that you could ever imagine. God loves you as an individual soul more than he loves the expanse of the universe. God loves you as much as he loves his Son, Jesus Christ. And we can know him, and we can worship him, and we can fellowship with him. And one day we will live with him forever. We will be in a kingdom that will never be shaken. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. It's God giving himself to us.
when we don't deserve it. What does the Bible say that is? The Bible says this is the deepest message you will ever hear. And what I want to do is just over for the next uh, few minutes is look at these verses that explain to us the depth of what we have and what the Spirit of God does as He works in us and in our church as it interfaces with the gospel. So we're just going to go through these verses and here we go. Verse 10, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. When this verse, when Paul writes that the Spirit searches everything, he says um, that there is a revelation to us. He reveals to us this word searches, the Spirit searches, is the, the Spirit apocalypto, that's a Greek, everything. It's apocalypse, if you've heard that word before, um, it sounds very scary, it sounds kind of frightening. What it means is this, to disclose or unveil when something, when there is an apocalypse, there is a revelation of something great and grand. This is, the Spirit reveals to us this huge, giant truth of the gospel. The revelation is making known to us what was previously unknown. We could not have understood what is in the mind of God unless the Spirit of God mined the depths of God and pulled it out and revealed it to us. It's the Spirit's function to seek this truth out and to make it known to us. This is verse 10. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. At the very depths of God are the is a gospel, and the Spirit pulls it out and makes it known to us. Verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. No one can know what God thinks. No one can know who God is. No one can know what matters to God. Not a single one of us, unless the Spirit of God reveals it to us. Because only the Spirit is qualified. This is what Paul says. Who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person? Paul writes in another letter to the Roman church, Romans 11. This is what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift to him that he might be repaid? And Paul asks this question, how unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? This might seem like a rhetorical question because in the context, he's saying, he is so big, and it sounds like we cannot know him. It's a rhetorical question, we think. Of course we can't know the mind of the Lord, because his judgments are unsearchable, his ways are inscrutable. But Paul says in today's passage that this is not a rhetorical question. In verse, verses 11 and 12, Paul says that the, as big and unsearchable as God's thoughts and ways are, we can know them. We can know the unsearchable, inscrutable ways of God because we can know the very depths of God. Verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Again, from Romans 
Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 5, This hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you believe in Christ, you have the Spirit which makes known to you what is true about God. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, if you do not follow Christ, you cannot know God. You can know about God, you can know some things about God, but the deepest part of God you cannot know. You cannot know the heart of God unless you have the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul says in Romans, the Holy Spirit, which makes these things known to you, it's not just given to you piecemeal. It's poured out on you abundantly. God loves to give the Spirit to you because it reveals to you his hearts. Think about that and think about how remarkable that is that we have access to the very thoughts of the creator of the universe. Harry Potter can never know the mind of J.K. Rowling. Hamlet can never know the thoughts of Shakespeare. But we, this very tiny and extremely limited creature, you and I, we can know God, our author. And Paul is telling us in this passage that the Spirit of the Lord knows the mind of the Lord. And because we have the Spirit in us, we can know all that he reveals to us. And we have access to the very mind of God because we have access to the Spirit. And the Spirit reveals to us what is true. And let me share with you an illustration that might help us understand a little bit about the significance of this. What does it mean that the Spirit reveals to us what is true? Now, imagine that you are in a pickle. Imagine that you are under financial strain, and not just occasional financial strain, but imagine that for years and years, you have needed money. You've been anxious about money. You can't pay your basic bills. You're not sure how how the bills will be paid or where tomorrow's meals will come from. Debt is being racked up as you try to live. You have medical bills and credit card bills and car payments and house payments, and your income is too small, and the financial obligations against you are too big. And it seems like this is how it's going to be for you for the rest of your life. There is no way out. Imagine that's your life. And now imagine that there's an extremely successful businessman who recently died, and in his bank account is $500 million dollars. But he has no immediate family. But somehow you're related to him and you're the only name on his list of people that might receive his money. The money sits in the account unclaimed until the bank assigns someone to track you down. And one day you hear a knock on the door. And this person tells you the story of this man. He tells you of his vast, vast fortune. He tells you that your name is on his list, that you are the rightful heir of his fortune. And after much learning, after much work, after learning about the businessman's life and his riches, and after doing much research about his family tree, this person said, um, I was somehow able to track you down. You. And now... This money is yours, $500 million. You're never going to be in need again. You're always going to have what you need. Now, this could not have happened unless there was someone who knew of the riches of this businessman. And unless there was someone who was willing to do the work of research and tracking down the person who was the rightful heir of these things. You may have lived the rest of your life in poverty, but there was someone 
who found you and revealed to you the vast riches that belong to you. And this is what the Spirit of God does. We were in poverty with no hope, with certain death hanging over us. And the Spirit said, I've got something to tell you. You won't believe it. There really is someone who reveals to us the vast riches that belong to us. It's far better than any amount of money that we could ever inherit. Because the Spirit of God has explored the infinite wisdom and the thoughts of God. The Spirit knows all the riches in the person of God. The Spirit knows the power of God and the love of God and the righteous anger of God and His holiness and His sovereignty and immutability. The Spirit knows the incomprehensibility of God. The Spirit searches those things and He tracks us down. And He says, let me in because I've got something to tell you. Verse 13 of this passage. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Well, we have a very spiritual message, IGC does. And all the things we do, all the little administrative things and all all the logistics, they're necessary, they're good. I'm thankful that we can take care of these things. But at our core, we are a spiritual organization made up of spiritual people who have had their minds opened by the Spirit of God. Therefore, the truths in this passage has implications for how we do ministry. It has implications for how we live our lives and how we think about who we are as a people. The Spirit reveals to us what is true. And when He does this, the Spirit reveals not only what is true, but He lets us see it as beautiful. The Spirit doesn't just inform us of what is true. He changes our minds and our hearts so that we will not just receive it, but that we will take it in and love it and cherish it and tell others about how beautiful it is. So therefore, what we do as a church needs to be done with that in mind. That we don't just want to let people know about something. We want people to know that it's beautiful and good. And unless the Spirit of God works in us, and unless the Spirit of God works in them, it's not going to make any sense to them. It's just going to be something that they can read on Wikipedia. But no, this is not what we have as a church. We have the very mind of God, the depths of God revealed to us. And we can be changed by that. The Puritan Richard Sibbs writes this, The very beholding of Christ is a transforming sight. The spirit that makes us new creatures and stirs us up to behold this Savior causes it to be a transforming beholding. If we look upon him with the eye of faith, it will make us like Christ. For the gospel is a mirror, and such a mirror that when we look into it and see ourselves interested in it, we are changed from glory to glory. A man cannot look upon the love of God and of Christ in the gospel, but it will change him to be like God and Christ. For how can we see Christ and God in Christ, but we shall see how God hates sin, and this will transform us to hate it as God does, who hated it so that it could not be expiated, but with the blood of Christ, the God-man. 
So seeing the holiness of God in it, it will transform us to be holy. When we see the love of God in the gospel and the love of Christ giving himself for us, this will transform us to love God. When we see the humility and the obedience of Christ, when we look on Christ as God's chosen servant in all this and as our surety and head, it transforms us to be to the likeness of Christ's humility and obedience. Richard Sibb says this, that unless the Spirit makes us new creatures, unless he reveals this to us, Christ will not be beautiful to you. He will not be beautiful to IGC. So therefore, we need the Spirit of God to work. The Spirit points us to Jesus. He opens our hearts to the beauty of Jesus. He causes us to love Jesus. Do you want to love Jesus? You can't will yourself to do it. The Spirit of God has to do something in you. Charles Spurgeon says this, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, Your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All these thoughts are thoughts about self. And we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but Christ is all in all. What's Charles Spurgeon saying? He says, some of us, we have weak faith. And we're disappointed in ourselves. Other people are disappointed in you. And you've tried so hard and you can't understand what you need to understand. And the focus is so much on you. But what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit says, turn your eyes away from yourself and look to Christ. If you have any desire to look to Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit working in you. And when you look at Jesus, this is when you're transformed. So therefore, we have to depend on the Spirit. We need to make room for the Spirit. We need to pay attention when he, we need to pay attention when He speaks. We need to study the word as it revealed to us by the spirits. This is what we need to do as a church. Rely on the spirits. There's a way that we can understand the gospel. And there's a way that we can understand the gospel. We could probably, um, if we had a pen and papers, write out what the gospel is. And it might be factually true. Um, That's an understanding of sorts. But there's a deeper understanding and this is what the deeper understanding is. It's standing under the truth of it. You can stand above the gospel and say, I understand it factually. But if you understand it, you stand underneath it. You submit yourself to it. And you say, unless God's spirit makes it known to me, I can't know it. So therefore, I will submit myself to it. I will submit myself to what the Spirit of God is trying to teach me. And the next time we're in 1 Corinthians, we'll look at the necessity of doing ministry and the power of the Spirit more. But let's think about this. What is it that we depend on? Are we trying harder to understand something, or are we relying on the Spirit? The call to worship that David led us, led us in at the beginning of the service contains a promise. He says that he will give us the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he, he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. To take what is true of Jesus, to take the commands of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. And when we are ready for it, when the Spirit has softened our hearts, when the Spirit has done his work in us and in the church, according to his schedule and timeline, according to his power in us, he will make known to us what we need to know. Jesus says, I'm leaving you, but I'm giving you the Holy Spirit and the things he's going to teach you. Man, hold on. Hold on. Just a couple more passages from Scripture and I'll end. Let me read to you from Romans 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings which has been known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul says this, that this message that we have, the gospel, we now have it. This secret of God, we now have it. The rulers of the sage cannot understand it, but we can because the Spirit has done his work and he's expressed the truths of it and the truths are expressed in the scripture. That's what Paul says in Romans 16 when he says, it's through the prophetic writings that have been made known to all the nations. When we look at the Bible, if it's going to hit you in any way that matters, it's going to be the Spirit of God softening our hearts so that we would receive it. And we'll talk about it um, as we hit the rest of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. But this is what we have in Delible Grace Church. You do not have primarily pastors who will preach the word or elders who will shepherd the church or Sunday school teachers and kids ministry leaders who will teach the gospel or people who do logistics or lead music. We have those things, but that's not really what it's about. What we have is the gospel given to us by God from his very depths, from the bottom of his heart's And it's revealed to us in the scriptures and it's made known to us by the spirits. This is what we have. What a gift we have. First Peter says this, everything that you and I can understand and know about the gospel, angels that have existed for a long, long time, way before us, I don't know how long, they long to know what we can know. That's how huge of a gift it is that we have. Can you imagine that there are, I don't know how many millions or billions of angels there are, and they're trying to understand what we know, but they never can. And yet we can, because we have the spirits. The angels long to look into what's been revealed to us, and yet we have it. So, indelible grace, church, may we never lose sight of the gospel. May we never forget the gospel. May we never veer from it. May that, this be central to it. May we be receptive to what the Spirit is doing. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 4. Don't quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5. Consider yourself as a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. 
because he dwells in us. View yourself as holy and righteous. And this church is holy and righteous because the blood of Christ covers us, because the Spirit has revealed this truth to us. May it be true of us. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we are... Um, I don't know, what, what, what do we say uh, if this is true? I don't know. Um, you tell us in your word that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So in our weakness, when we don't understand what we need to understand, I pray that you would make it known to us. Encourage us. Uh, be with us. I pray that the gospel would be central to what we do and um, that we would carry out the mission of that you've given us faithfully and we preach the word faithfully and that those around us would be changed by God. Do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.